we're going to eat this elephant one bite at a time. We're offering a lot of resources for further exploration as you like, and we're still going to have our usual fun deconstructing the incredible systems of beliefs, practices, rules, and perspectives that surround food and what it means to grow a food, cook food, and eat food. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm fine and fabulous. How are you and where are you? Uh, I am fine and fabulous as well. And I am in Pensacola, Florida right now. How exciting. Yeah. How is the As We Eat Going Places project coming along? So good. We have been to so many places. We have so many fun stories coming up. I can't wait to get all of the videos edited and up on the channel. I think people are going to love it. Oh, so exciting. I love hearing about your adventures and I know others will as well. So get those videos. Because I can't wait. I can't wait to experience what you guys have been doing. And uh, I'm holding down the fort here in sunny, she said with a joke, Washington State. A lot of travel actually happening for me these days. Since the beginning of the year, I've been in California three times. And I'm heading out to Atlanta in March, which I'm very excited about. Not quite as exciting as you're going places, but um, eager to get my hands on some good Atlanta food. Mm, for sure. Good times. What are we talking about today? Well, March is Women's History Month, so this month's episode will have a decidedly feminine bent to them. And today's topic has been fueled by an anthology of essays with a perspective of women and food. It's called From Betty Crocker to Feminist Food Studies, and it was edited by Arlene Vosky Avakian and Barbara Haber and contains essays from writers like Laura Shapiro, Dara Goldstein, Laura Linfeld, and so many others. And it's broken down into four categories of marketplace, history, representations, and resistance. The thing that really struck me was from the introduction. In a fairly efficient explanation of the history of the study of food in relation to women's studies, the editors revealed that even feminist scholars up until the mid-1990s focused only on women's food pathologies. So things like anorexia, bulimia, and other eating disorders, and completely ignored cooking and domesticity, recognizing them as, quote, a marker of patriarchal oppression and therefore not worthy of attention, which is so interesting to me because as early as 1966, the French anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss associated cooking with culture. So essentially, the act of cooking was what brought about the development of cultures and societies. And also in 1966, Mary Douglas, a British anthropologist, discussed in her book, Purity and Danger, how food taboos, specifically in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, created these tribal societies and really reinforced the group identity. So essentially, as women, we're pretty much responsible for 
all things. <laughs> I have a hard time disagreeing with that. <laughs> you know, I was really excited to dive into this topic. I was a women's studies scholar at one point in my life. The reality of that was that I actually ended up taking so many women's studies classes at my small liberal arts college that ultimately just made sense to declare it as a major and get credit for it. But as I recall, we did not talk about food. We did not talk about domestic arts and things. It was considered to be a topic beneath our academic scholarly approach. The arrogance of that is kind of mind boggling to me. One thing that I discovered while I was preparing for this conversation was this really awesome quote from the USDA Bureau of Home Economics. And we're going to talk about that another time. But one of the Bureau's leading scholars was Hildegard Nieland, and she wrote in a 1929 Bureau document called, Is the Modern Housewife a Lady of Leisure? She wrote this, With the help of the extension and research staffs of several colleges, we have induced more than 2,000 homemakers to keep careful daily records of how they spent their time for seven days of a typical week. Most of these records come from middle-class homes, from farm and village women with whom the college extension service is in touch, and in smaller numbers from club women in towns and cities. Five-sixths of these homemakers spent over 42 hours a week in their homemaking. More than half spent over 48 hours, and one-third spent over 56 hours. The average for all is slightly over 51 hours a week. If this be part-time work, what, one may ask, would be full-time? End quote. And she, I mean, she raises this fantastic point, right? What is women's work in the home? What is it about and what does it mean? And I think that this conversation that we're going to have today reflects, if not replicates, other conversations happening not only around dinner tables, but within media, symposiums, and conferences that are all taking a really thoughtful view on the state of food through the lens of past, present, and future. As you say, Lay, this is not a topic that we have paid a lot of attention to until the, the last quarter of the 20th century and on. And we ourselves within As We Eat, we have touched on such themes of how persistent belief of the transformative powers of food transcends centuries from you know Roman gladiators to the Super Bowl, or how international expositions are exploring culinary innovations in the future of food. So I'm really excited that we're having this conversation now, and I hope we keep having it for a long time to come. Yeah, and I'm really happy to see that we're starting to look not only at food from this perspective, but also the act of cooking through this lens. And this anthology, as we have already stated, from Betty Crocker to Feminist Food Studies unpacks so much, much more than we can even cover today or probably through the whole month. What I would really like to start with is by looking at the essay by Laura Shapiro, I guarantee, Betty Crocker and the woman in the kitchen. And the thing that I really loved about this essay specifically is that it revealed this necessity to respect the process of creation from failure to success. We talked a lot about Betty Crocker in our Grains episode, which was episode 20. And at the point in our discussion, we talked about her being the kitchen confidant. She was the one you could reach out to without judgment and get your kitchen issues answered. She had several initiatives in place at the point that we left Betty Crocker that really celebrated homemaking as a profession. You had this confidant. You had this cheerleader in your corner. And then came the 1950s, television, and cake mixes. 
Now, General Mills and several other companies similar to General Mills had applied a lot of resources to cake mixes, and they had determined that television was the key to convincing American housewives to purchase these products that promised speed and certainty. And I think it's important to understand that, again, the television had just been introduced. It was a new medium. Everybody was trying to figure out how to utilize this to promote their products and sell more products. And it's also important to understand that women took great pride in baking, and cakes especially held a very important role in this. They were baked for special occasions, birthdays, anniversaries, work dinners. And surveys actually showed that of all the housework, women really liked cooking the best. It was creative and demanding in a good way. So cake mixes were a really hard sell. General Mills decided that Betty would guide women through this television show, very much like she guided women in the radio show, but she had a very different persona on television where her radio persona was very approachable. The TV persona was very dignified and much less personable. The show failed. They tried it twice. It failed (laughs) twice. Though Betty's more professional persona carried through to print advertising and TV commercials where her tagline, I guarantee a perfect cake every time you bake, cake after cake after cake became famous. And so cooking and Betty Crocker became more about results rather than the effort and creativity. Betty herself was transformed from this kitchen confidant that we introduced you to in the grains episode to a very corporate, efficient, almost propagandized character, espousing homemaking as the most rewarding part of a woman's existence. Probably this was not the right message to send to these women, because at this point in time, almost 30% of married women were working outside of the home. And then by the 1960s, prepackaged foods were on every pantry shelf. In our freezers, pancakes were being made from mixes and rolls were being pulled from cardboard tubes. It's really no wonder that so many women at this time found making dinner unsatisfying. And then on the heels of Betty's demise was a lady larger than life. She never made any guarantees. She never said that getting dinner on the table would be easy. She was far from perfect. Her kitchen wasn't pristine. She dropped things on the floor during the live demonstrations and during taping her TV shows. But she talked about the failures. And she told us that it would be okay. She made cooking more understandable and real. She celebrated the creativity of cooking. And with her patented sign-off, bon appetit, she became the cheerleader that we needed to get back into the kitchen to create again. And if you hadn't guessed, she's Julia Child. We love you, Julia. (laughs) As a culture and as a society, these women really looked at Betty for this guidance, not to this woman who in many of these TV shows, well, in the TV show, she signed off in back of a desk. She never entered into the kitchen. So she became this woman who was in the kitchen to the woman who had abandoned the kitchen. And then Julia pulled us back into the kitchen. I loved that so much about this essay. Yeah, this essay was awesome. 
And on one hand, we had this figurehead that was extremely potent. I believe in the article she talks about how 90% of uh, people surveyed for a particular kind of perception study knew who Betty Crocker was. Of that, 70% knew that she was part of the General Mills empire. From a marketing standpoint, she was incredibly successful. And she became this figurehead that launched thousands of cookbooks, Mm -hmm. TV show, radio show. She's been a presence for so long to the point that one of our listeners (laughs) discovered she wasn't real by our podcast, which I find mind boggling. And yet at the same time, I get, right? Because she, this character... And the other thing in Shapiro's article that I thought was really fascinating was this idea that she wasn't the first, nor was she the last. Borden Condensed Foods had a similar figure. In fact, we talked about one of them when we were did our pies episode when I was talking about key lime pie, that there was this sort of fictional personality that had this recipe for how to make the lemon magic pie without having to do a whole lot of work. And then along comes Julia Child and everything that Julia was able to do to pique uh, the interest again. The one thing about Julia is that she has persisted. And I did the math. I'm not good at math. I had to use my calculator. 59 years after her first television episode, she is still relevant. She is still looked at by millions of women. And I think in Shapiro's article, she referenced them as daughters. There was 4 million daughters. And that was 20 years ago that she wrote this essay. That's true. Yeah. No, she's she has absolutely persisted in our imagination, in our consciousness. I loved her autobiography. There's an article about that in the Ask We Eat Journal about the life and times of Julia Child. But yeah, I just a quick anecdote, actually, since we were talking about Betty Crocker and cake mixes and the cult of you can and somehow must be able to do it all. I do remember making a cake from scratch for my mother for her birthday. I felt like it was an important thing that I do that. And somehow after full days of work, I was going to come home and do this cake in time for a dinner party. It was going to be the centerpiece of this dinner party. And I was exhausted by the effort and discovered that my results, doing it completely from scratch, was truly no different and no better than doing a box cake. In fact, I think the following year, because I had remembered that experience being so just sort of exhausting and nerve wracking, that I did do a box cake. And No one knew. No one could tell. While it was exhausting, it was satisfying to know that I had made it from scratch. I did feel not a sense of failure, but not a sense of accomplishment by making a box cake. I remember this nuance from Shapiro's article. It did detract from the effort to do it with a box cake. And which is exactly opposite from what from a position they were trying to take, which was, hey, let your creativity shine the box cake mix will do the work of the base and you get to add your flourishes with decorating and frosting and you can make it unique and you can make it your own. But if you're not a decorator, right. like I am not a decorator, then what is actually left to me is the effort and the taste 
Shapiro's article just so resonated with me on that point about how disappointing it to discover that the angel food cake out of a box basically was no different than hours worth of effort involving egg whites. With the yeah. exception of that satisfaction. And I think that was probably exactly. the best point of that article is that you were almost cheating yourself from the creativity of being in the kitchen. From this book in its entirety, but particularly in the introduction and then also the Shapiro essay on Betty Crocker, my imagination was immediately caught by this overview of the particular work of sociologist Marjorie DeVault who says food preparation is work that defines family. And I really was interested about kind of digging down into this. So if we define work as activities performed for a wage outside the home, and this is typical in an industrialized society where someone goes to work and comes home and someone else is at home counterbalancing each other, and then defining leisure as activities performed without a wage inside the home, then what is it that we actually call the domestic activities performed in the home that are not leisure, but are necessary to form and support the concept of a family unit? And what I mean here is what makes a family different from roommates sharing a home? Do you, is it, is I think it's the food. What, what I, do you think, Leigh? I would have to agree with that. We talk about this a lot, that food defines. It mm-hmm. creates this, not boundary, but it creates this sphere around a society, a tribe. And yeah. I think that's how you define what a family is in regards to food. And that family could be... Yeah. That nuclear family, it could be a family that really is of your own choice as well, or a societal family. Yeah, it's just it's a fun it's a fun Mm. idea to play with. And I would agree that feeding and being fed is an essential component of family dynamics enough so that if those dynamics are somehow altered or reversed, say, there's a child that's cooking for the parents or grandparents, or if there's a sibling that's preparing a, a meal for other siblings, like in, in a main provider kind of way, that those are unusual enough to give us pause and actually maybe make us think that there's something wrong in the family mm. dynamic, that you're not having this adult to child flow of food and feeding that somehow we've the streams have crossed and everything's reversed and therefore things are out of whack. It's that strong perception that parents feed their children, that mothers feed their children is so heavily imbued in everything we think about. It's just it's such a strong dynamic. And DeVault writes that through the work of feeding, quote, women quite literally produce family life from day to day. End quote. And that, quote, this activity is work which is both physical and mental labor and a social practice which constructs family. End quote. She goes on to liken meal planning to puzzle solving. And she completely got me here. I cannot disagree because decisions must be made on a daily basis in relation to not only the personal preferences of the family members or the people partaking in the meal, but also to what is available and accessible to make that meal And then third, to what culture considers to be a proper meal. And I really thought this was a fascinating idea because there is that sense, what constitutes a meal that is acceptable culturally to be eaten as a meal? I think a lot of people would react with some some degree of horror 
to a mom putting a bowl of sugar pops on the table and says, here's your dinner, as opposed to a balanced meal of protein and vegetables and starches. We, we have that feeling that food must be, when you're cooking for others, that there must be consideration to nutrition and that the owner of that decision about the nutrition is the cook. We have examples in history of households where one member of the household, usually the woman of the house, might in discussion with her housekeeper or her cook determine a menu and that menu is actually executed by others. It's still rarely the case of a cook makes a decision, the mother signs off on it. There is this idea that cook, capital C cook, is the keeper of the menu, the keeper of the nutrition, and also the keeper of the pantry. I particularly liked this quote from DeVault as well. And quote, by solving this puzzle each day, the person who cooks for the family is continually creating one part of the reality of household life. At the same time, she is constructing her own place within the family as one who provides for the needs of others, end quote. I also liked this bit from a study of the impact of colonialism in the Andean community of Zumbagua, in which M.J. Weissmantle makes this interesting point, quote, Men working in the towns and children going to school internalize metropolitan ideologies about time and work, redefining work to include only that which is remunerated with mm. wages. In this framework, the work women do in the home to maintain family and culture, once considered vital to survival, may be devalued, end quote. So having said all that, I was immediately taken up with these questions. What does it mean to be the designated cook in the family? And for those who are the designated cook, what difference is there between the food that we make for ourselves, ostensibly just eating to survive, that one-to-one -one relationship with survival where I need to keep myself alive, therefore I eat, <laughs> versus the food that we consciously prepare for others to be eaten as a family meal that you're actually contributing to the survival of a group or community as well. Cooking for yourself versus cooking for others. So you know me, I love to poll. I love to ask people how they think and how they feel about something. And so I did ask this question of my social network, and I got a variety of perspectives that actually fall out into some interesting categories. So I'm really excited to share this with you. Some enjoy cooking no matter who is the eater. So basically, I cook for myself like I would cook for others. Most of the members of my social groups, including folks from the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery, talked at length about solo cooking being a relief from the pressures and expectations inherent in cooking for others. So I'm going to read you some of these quotes. I really look forward to cooking for myself. When cooking for others, including husband and kids, it's all about their wants, needs, and desires, and it is exhausting. When cooking for company or bigger parties, I'm entirely fixated on their expectations. On the rare nights when I'm entirely in charge of my own meal plans, I crave the foods no one else typically wants. Typically simple things like wild rice or beans and brown rice. Another said, my cooking is completely different when I cook for myself. When I cook for myself, I'm carefree and I cook with ingredients that no one else in the family typically likes. When I cook for others, I worry a lot about whether or not they will like it. Another, when I cook for myself, I can be more adventurous. I don't have to worry about allergies, preferences. I can make it healthy with the ingredients that suit my diet. When I cook for others, there's always some whining about ingredients. I can't use what I might have on hand. Instead, I'm buying more just to please them. 
Another, my cooking, experimentation, testing, changes drastically when my wife is away. Normally, she is the first taster of recipes that I'm trying to finalize for the cookbook. When she's away, I go wild on dishes and ingredients that she prefers not to be a taster for. For example, Persian soup of lamb head and hoofs. Another, when I was single, my cooking was whimsical. I ate whatever I felt like eating whenever I felt like it. My cooking is different now that I'm married. Take mornings, for example. I cut up fruit for both of us every day. I didn't do that when I was on my own. On my own, I would eat berries out of the refrigerator. Now, if I decide I want eggs, it's not just me, so I don't just dump eggs into a pan. I stop. I think about it. I usually make a frittata. Then because it's not precisely what I'm craving, because it's for two, I add on a salad or a pan of hash browns. We both work from home and have always kept our own hours. When I was single, I ate breakfast, snacks, and maybe dinner. Maybe not. As long as I got my eight fruit and veg a day, I was fine with it. I can't do that to someone else. Someone I love deserves better than whatever I happen to pick out of the fridge. Now that I'm married, it's brunch just about every day and dinner together most evenings. I make something different every day. Wow. I, Kim, also noticed there was an undertone to a nutrition gap between the foods we cook just for ourselves and the foods we cook as a meal with and for others. So some more perspectives here. First, I am totally different in cooking for others versus cooking for myself. I definitely put more thought into flavors, presentation, textures, and the overall message of the plate when I'm making food for other people. When I'm cooking only for myself, I'm actually really happy eating the same things over and over. It feels indulgent and luxurious somehow to just make my favorite things repeatedly, which are so very comforting and delicious to just me. Another, when I cook for others, I pour all my love into the food. If it's not perfect, I get annoyed with myself because people I love deserve the best. But having some self-confidence and self-compassion issues, I often don't see myself as being worthy of making just as amazing food for myself as I do for others. Probably also because growing up when I ate by myself, it was because I was sneaking food because I was forced on diets all the time and had food restrictions. But I'm slowly changing the narrative on that. Every once in a while, when my husband goes on work trips, I'll get something special from the store for myself to make at home and try and convince myself I have nothing to hide throughout the entire meal. Another, when I cook for others, I might make a little bit more effort on presentation, but most of the time I cook for myself. I take great care to make good meals that are balanced and taste good. I set the table nicely and take time to enjoy the meal. Finally, either can be a show of love or a rote activity because food is needed for survival, just depending on my mood. Like everyday cooking for my household is often what is the food I can manage to make that we will eat, but can be, this is a special thing that I'm putting effort into to show care and affection. Cooking for me can be need a food, what is easy, or can be making something special I don't get to have often because only I like it. If I'm cooking for company or for an event, it's much more likely to fall into the cooking for love category. I can't overlook the idea of appreciation because this definitely comes up in Laura Shapiro's essay. Shapiro describes the various ways that General Mills advertising executives worked to build the character of Betty Crocker as someone who not only understood, but who appreciated that the lives women were leading in their homes was important, valuable, challenging, and therefore rewarding. This was built on research conducted by Marjorie Husted, a one-time Betty Crocker herself, and a key figure in building the General Mills Home Service Department. 
And Husted told advertising copywriters in a speech delivered in 1948 that, quote, her research among modern homemakers had convinced her that they felt uncertain, anxious, insecure about their work and its status. When she asked what they would need in order to feel satisfied with their domestic careers, the answers echoed one another. Encouragement, appreciation, and recognition, family appreciation, end quote. Not only did this perception change Betty Crocker's framework of kitchen and household accomplishments as being successful and appreciated, and this was absolutely noted by you, Lay, earlier, but in my polling of uh, folks, I noticed a theme, too, of appreciation as being a desired or necessary component of cooking for others. Last three perspectives here. First one, my cooking and the effort that goes into it is determined by how appreciatively it is received by the intended group or individuals. Another, I cooked to pay for college. I cooked for my kids. All they ever did was complain, even when it was something they liked. Now, as empty nesters, hubby is happy with a hot meal. And finally, cooking for myself is utilitarian and perfunctory. I will default to a cheese sandwich for dinner more nights than not. Cooking for others is nurturing them, and I will happily spend hours planning, prepping, and providing. The best commendation my loved ones can give me is, this food is amazing. This notion that this is work that is performed out of love, out of duty, out of a sense of I need to be doing something to create, nurture, and build my family and our definition of it. I think it's obvious. I hope it's obvious. I hope it's obvious that we understand that work needs to be appreciated and respected, that cooking is something that is unbelievably necessary not optional. It, it's something we have to do every day. It's something that even in households without children, we look to somebody to be the provider of meals. That that certainly is true in my household and my family. I like my food, so I'm happy to be a cook. But I'm actually have been wondering why is it that role has fallen to me? Why is it that I have assumed that role as much as I have? So it's, it's a yeah, that's yeah. a really good question. And I, for me, just listening and thinking about this, for me, I'm much like you. I'm a good cook. I actually take possession of the kitchen. So that's part of my personality. I don't know that I ever have thought that, except with children, of course, that it's my responsibility. I have to do this. But that's where I have been comfortable. It is a good question about those gender roles. Why is it that women are perceived as being the ones who are the homemakers? And why is it that chefs are mostly men? Yeah. But yeah, it's very good questions to ask and to contemplate for sure. Kim, that was uh, pretty jam-packed full of information about Betty Crocker and feminism and food perspectives. What can our audience expect in two weeks? Oh, in two weeks, we are going to take a very careful, considerate look at suffrage in the United States and the rise of community cookbooks and how the two actually corresponded and supported each other. I'm really excited to I talk love about this, this. story. It's yes. going to be fun. But for more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss any episodes, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And it would make us super, super happy.
be if you would share this episode with a friend and review or rate it on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And I understand that Spotify might be adding a review function. I still haven't seen it, but if you can find it, please, please review us. Five stars, pretty please. And as mentioned, we also publish the fascinating fact-filled As We Eat Journal on Substack. We would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, and travel stops. There are four subscription tiers, and we're sure you'll find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. And thank you to all of our subscribers, because we could not make this podcast without you. We love you. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project, exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires.